Hello, everybody. This is Dan Milner. I'm Blurb's Creative Evangelist, and uh, I'm also the host of this audio Q&A series. Today, we have a topic called Capturing and Preserving Memorable Moments Through Photography. It's a 10-question Q&A that I'm going to not only ask myself the questions, but guess what? I'm going to answer those same questions. So let's break this down into two distinct subjects. First, capturing moments. Second, preserving these moments. Now, on the surface, as many of you know, these are two very different tasks, but ultimately, They're kind of things that go hand in hand. One of these items, capturing, is a great thing. It's what most of us spend our lives trying to do is we're obsessed with going out and making pictures. The other, preserving, is, let's face it, tedious, challenging, expensive at best. So let's break them down and talk about solutions today. Why don't we? Everybody seems to love solutions today. Let's just start there. Okay, question number one, what is the best first step to capturing memorable moments? Now, my first response is, where do I start? I think the best way to look at this is that capturing real moments with with a camera requires a certain skill level with photography that is probably going to take you a while to achieve. For some reason today, people think that they just buy a camera and this comes naturally, but it's really a skill. It's something you have to learn and then practice to stay in shape. Uh, This is totally normal and natural and to be expected that it would take you some time to to get good at this. Documenting real life, uh, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of anticipation. So the more you attempt to capture, the better you are going to become. And what I mean by that is practice. Like, you can't expect to just turn the camera on and start capturing great stuff. You really have to get basically in shape, in photographic shape. One thing to keep in mind, great photography is incredibly rare, regardless of what happens with technology. So developing the technique is what you're after here. And that means learning to anticipate, learning to see light, and being comfortable with the equipment. But just because you see a lot of great photography and just because you hear that something is great doesn't mean that it is. This We're living in a very different world today. So just remember, if you're frustrated for any reason and you think that you should be continuously or, or commonly, casually making great work, just know that there are very, very few people on the planet who are able to do that. Don't feel bad. Just keep practicing. Number two. Speaking of equipment, what camera should I buy? If I had a dollar for every time someone asked me that, I wouldn't be rich. I would not be rich, but I would probably be able to buy a mid-size American sedan, not a top-of-the-line package, no leather, no sunroof, no lane departure warning, but you know, like a, not a base model, but one step up from the base model, I would definitely be able to buy that with, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me this question. I always give the same answer. Buy the camera that is small enough that you will carry it every single day, regardless of where you are, who you are, and what you do. Uh, I have a camera with me at all times. Today, that's typically a Fuji X-T2, which is very small, or it's a Leica M4, which is basically the same size, just a lot heavier. But the point is they both fit in this very small backpack that I have with me all the time. And um, and these are real cameras. This is not a mobile phone camera. These are real cameras. And there are plenty out there that are even smaller than these. The key is you want to buy something you're actually going to take. I don't know how many people have come to me over the years, ended up buying a giant SLR. And then they say to me, oh, we're just going to dinner. I don't want to take the camera. Or oh, I'm just going, it's just the weekend vacation. I don't want to take a camera. Well, then what's the point? Why'd you buy it? So buy something small. Number three, speaking of mobile phones, what do you think about only using mobile to capture memorable moments? I know some of you out there are laughing right now because you know how I feel about this, but most people seem to be totally happy doing just this thing. But for me personally, I need much, much, much more than what I can do with a phone. Mobile images to me tend to work well for posted, uh, posed, static 
generic imagery. That's the beauty of the phone. The other beauty is the size and the fact that it's in your hand most of the day. In fact, it's in humanity's hand most of the day, at least in the first and second worlds and even in developing worlds. But here's the thing. If you really want to be a visual historian of memorable moments or historian of your family or your life or whatever, my advice is to get something that you can put to your eye, a camera that you can bond with and something that allows for a far wider range of image than you will get with a mobile phone. And what this will allow you to do, when there's something that happens when a camera comes to your eye and the rest of the world fades away and you're looking through that little tunnel, it, you have a tendency, for whatever reason, it brings you closer to what you're, what you're engaging with. A lot of people think you hide behind the camera. I don't think that's the case at all. I think when you look through and it narrows and eliminates the distraction of what's around that object or person or moment you're photographing, the camera actually makes you, brings you closer to it. So if you, if you get a real camera and something you can bond with, something you can put to your eye, I think this is, these are the first steps in developing your own style. And style should not be overlooked. This is a critical part of being a photographer. It tells people that an image is yours. And that, in the long run, is really one of the only valuable things you have remaining. Mobile phone imagery, on the other hand, at this point is ubiquitous. It's impossible to tell who did what uh, when you put images up online. If you went to the top 100 Instagrammers and said, okay, tell me who these people are, I think it would be very difficult to tell a lot of people apart. And that comes from mobile phone stuff. That comes from conforming, all kinds of other things. But I, mobile phone is great as a supplement to your other system, but I would definitely work with both. Okay, question number four. Are there certain ingredients you look for when looking for moments? Okay, now this is where we're getting into the good stuff. This is a good question. Are there certain ingredients you look for when looking for moments? Now my students out there, former workshop students or, or whoever, they're gonna know how I'm gonna answer this question. But what we're talking about here are basically the building blocks, the DNA of successful imagery. Get your pens out because you're going to want to write these three things down. And I can hear my students out there yelling this answer. Light, timing, and composition. In that order and in that order of importance. That is what we're after here. Great light is essential. I don't shoot at 12 noon unless I absolutely have to and every other option has been exhausted. Uh, that's the only time I will work in light that's terrible if, I have a, if I'm in control of the shoot. So great light is essential, especially if you're able to control timing locations, etc. I scout locations all the time. When I used to do um, portraits and weddings, I would go the day before, or sometimes many days before, with a pen and a paper, and I would scout locations for sun and shade. I would have plan A, plan B, and plan C, so that no matter what time of day, if somebody threw me a curveball, I would know where I'd be able to go to find the right light to make pictures, whether it was sunny or cloudy. Okay, timing, the second part of this, light timing and composition. Timing is what real moments are about. And again, much of what you see, uh, especially in things like Instagram, these are posed image images, and those are totally fine, but there's something about capturing an actual real moment that is so much more satisfying. Uh, it's what Cartier-Bresson uh, dubbed uh, you know, the decisive moment. This is here one second, gone forever. And you have to be skilled enough to capture this. This doesn't come by accident. You typically don't luck into photos like this. It's something that you practice, you anticipate, and you get better at, boom, you capture them. All right, finally, composition. And this is where your practice comes in. Your composition, how you see and dissect the world is native to you. And my, the way I see it is native to me. And you've really got to practice to find, find it. You have to really go out over and over and over again with nobody telling you what to do and say, what, if left to my own devices, who am I with this camera in my hand? That's where composition comes in. Now, there are tons of rules to composition, 
But keep in mind, these are more guidelines, more than rules, and all of them are completely and utterly available to be broken if you have justification. So again, are there ingredients you look for when looking for moments? Yes, light, timing, composition. Question five, who are the photographers known for capturing real-life moments? Oh man, there's been so many. Many, many good people through the history of photography, but most notably, well, let's talk about Henri Cartier-Bresson, who I I pronounced that kind of weird, almost like a pseudo-American French there, Henri Cartier-Bresson. He was one of the founders of Magnum, and he's the guy that came up with the decisive moment idea. This applies to moments both large and small. So if you're a war photographer, like the folks at the Magnum uh, photo agency or the Seven Agency, and you're shooting historical, world-changing events, those are decisive moments for sure. You think about things like the Hindenburg, the whoever photographed that with his 4x5, I'm sure, was a miracle photographer. But this also applies to people like you and me, just photographing our kids, our grandkids, a family events, looking for real moments, attempting to capture them. This is addictive, highly rewarding types of photography, but again, practice and you'll get there. Question number six, let's talk about preservation now. Okay, we're shifting five of these nice, simple, fun questions. Now we're going on to the preservation side, which is getting going to get a little tricky. Why is preservation so important? And this is a really good question because I've been called all sorts of names throughout the years because I've spoken a lot about having an archive. And a lot of people feel that the only archives are a joke, that there's no reason to have them, that the world of photography is about right now. And I know that we are obsessed with the now, but preserving moments is about legacy, history, family, memory. Photographs are evidence, right? They're evidence of life, of truth, of details, of things our brains aren't necessarily designed to record in quite the same way. For example, I'm not on Facebook. I think I technically have an account because of something I did at Blurb, but I got an email this morning from Facebook that said something like, oh, here's one of your memories from the past. And it was like images I made God knows how long ago. I have no idea. I don't, I'm not really on there. I don't want to be on there. But in essence, that is what preservation is about. Yes, now is important in getting your work out if that's your goal in life, but man, having an archive and having history, legacy, family, memory, these are the kind of things what makes preservation important. Question seven, are there steps I can take to help with preserving my photographs? Short answer, yes. The first and foremost idea is for you to develop an archiving or preservation system and stick with it so that each and every single time you return with new images and you sit down at your laptop or your tower or whatever, you're not wondering what to do with them or where to put them or how to label them or where you're going to store them. You have a plan that starts every time one of those SD cards or however you're recording ends in your, in your computer and the way you label, the way you, uh, where you archive them, how you store them, et cetera, you have got to develop a system literally starting today. Otherwise, I don't think you will have anything left in the long run. And that might sound harsh, but if I'll give you some more info on this in a second. But this is tricky. So you develop a system, and again, there's, there's probably no perfect system today. Uh, Some of the most advanced digital asset management people that I know, they have a system that's too complex for me. They have more knowledge than I do. They have more equipment than I do. So I've had to sort of rig my own, but you you better believe I have a system and I stick to it and it's been very, very helpful. Okay, number eight. Film was so easy to preserve, but what about the digital files of today? Oof. Okay, good point. Film, you could throw your negatives in a shoebox, and 75 years later, you could open the box and your negatives were still there, uh, unless your shoes were, you know, pretty stinky, but whatever. Digital is entirely different, and oddly enough, digital is really challenging to preserve. For those of you, just, I'm going to cut this off before you start. For those of you uttering, just back it up to the cloud, man. 
this is not a practical solution for many of us, okay? So just think about this. So I've got 40 terabytes of information. How do, how do I get that online? I have no idea what it costs to, to preserve that every year is going to go up and up, or even if it goes down and down, it's still a lot of money. I don't have any way to get it online, et cetera. So just think about this. Every time your finger hits the shutter and you create a digital photograph, you are now on the hook to preserve that image for the entirety of your life. If that's something you think that's important, let's say that your son or daughter gets married and you photograph the wedding. There's a real, there's a quote unquote real photographer there, but you're, you know, a parental unit and you make some pictures. This is something I want to save forever. That's what we're talking about here, right? So if you're a hobbyist and you go to Africa on safari for vacation and you come back with 5,000 images and you're like, these are really important. I want to save them. So those images are going to end up in your hard drive right? At, or drive system. At some point, all of those drives are going to get old and wear out and need to be replaced. Get, think about that, which means you're going to have to migrate that data to another location. Well, I know some of you are saying, okay, that's no big deal, right? No big deal. The hard drives are cheap. Okay, now let's say you have 20 terabytes of data or 30 or 40. Don't think this is a rare thing. I know people that have way more than me. You're, I have somewhere between 40 and 50 terabytes, and that's just my digital work, not including my NEGs. Even getting this amount of data on the cloud is next to impossible. It's time consuming, it's costly. And what happens when the cloud service that I'm using goes away? That's already happened to me multiple times. So all I'm trying to do here is paint a picture of like, hey, if this is something you wanna do, you have to think about data migration as being part of your future, whether it's small scale or large scale. So this is a real commitment and it's not just you, you're not in the same boat. You have every major museum and organization in the world who's facing the exact same dilemma. What do we do? So again, come up with a system. I use a, a certain drive system and I'll, I'll talk about that here in a second. Let's move on to question nine. What do you recommend as a good place to, to start? Okay, not to get too technical with you guys because this will bore all of us to death, but I'm a fan of buying removable hard drive systems with at least four bays. Now again, this is not the perfect solution. It may not work for all of you. It's just what I do. Take it for what it's worth. I have a main drive that I back up each shoot to and then from that main drive, I back up to another three drives so that I've got everything, at least four copies of everything. Two of these drives stay on my property. They stay in my hard drive system, while the fourth drive is kept in a secure off-site location. And I know some of you are going, you're, you're crazy, that's too much. Trust me, I have had to dive into these every aspect of these archives over the years multiple times. And if you haven't, you are the luckiest human being I have ever seen. Now, also remember, Uncle Dan here, I've got that weird death ray that my body puts out that destroys all things electronic. And by the way, this happened again yesterday while I was trying to print something, but that is a story for another day. So get a good drive system, removable bays. I have a four bay system that I have loaded with 10 terabyte drives. And when they fill up, I pull them out. I put another set of four in and I keep the same system going. And all I'm doing every five to seven years is I'm taking all the data on all these drives and I'm transferring onto whatever new drive system I have down the road. It's a total pain and absolutely essential if you're gonna be a digital photographer. Okay, finally, question 10, are there any other ways to preserve? Well, of course, this is a blurb Q&A, right? So you knew there had to be a book angle. Yes, prints and books are a great way to at least have one printed copy of what you're capturing especially if you're capturing with digital. Printing is a really a, a nice, complete, you know, last resort fallback position. If something happens to your digital files, at least you've got a beautiful archival print. 
Many printers today use archival ink. Plenty of papers offer archival qualities. Um, I've got an inkjet in my office that gets hit with direct sun every single day. The, this print that I made in Hawaii like 20 years ago, it gets hit by direct sun. It looks perfect, and it's been up there for at least 20 years. It looks brand new. I'm a huge fan of print and, I'm a, and the benefits that come with printing. And I think whether you're making prints or books, having a physical copy for added protection, not just for viewing pleasure alone, but for added protection is, is sort of another little line of defense that you have in terms of preserving. So that, in a nutshell, was the audio Q&A. I went a little longer than I thought, but there's so much information here about these particular scenarios. We could do 20 podcasts on capturing alone and 20 on preserving alone. On the preserving side, one little last note of recommendation is look up something called the Digital Asset Management Book by an author named Peter Crow, and I think it's K-R-O-U-G-H. And Peter, if I misspelled that, I'm sorry, but people will find you through, through the magic Google um, this is a fantastic book that talks about real-life ways of, of archiving your digital assets. And uh, Peter is the guy that I go to when I'm stumped, which happens frequently, as you, most of you know. And he has been, been a really remarkable resource and knows far about this than I ever will. In terms of capturing, practice. Have fun. Practice, repeat. Practice, repeat. Don't, don't be afraid of failing and saying, look, I'm not making magic every time I go out. Nobody does. Have fun, and we'll see you next time here on the audio Q&A series.